Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with David Epstein. David is the author of two top 10 New York Times bestsellers, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, and The Sports Gene. He was previously a science and investigative reporter at ProPublica, and prior to that, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, where he co-authored the story at the revealed Yankees third baseman Alex Rodriguez had used steroids. His writing has been honored by an array of organizations from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine to the Society of Professional Journalists and the National Center on Disability and Journalism. David has given talks about performance science and the uses and misuses of data on five continents. His TED Talk, Are Athletes Really Getting Faster, Bigger, or Better, Stronger, has been viewed seven million times. David has master's degrees in environmental science and journalism. Like many of the characters in his book, Range, he has benefited from a winding career. He worked as an ecology researcher in the Arctic, studied geology and astronomy while residing in the Sonora Desert and Blithely signed up to work on the D-deck of a seismic research vessel shortly after it had been attacked by pirates. David enjoys volunteering with the Pat Tillman Foundation and Classroom Champions. An avid runner, he was a Columbia University record holder and twice NCAA All-East as an 800-meter runner. I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. That was a, yeah. I sound more interesting on paper, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have, or which is really interesting. I think what's going to be interesting about conversing with you after I've sort of gotten a few chapters into your book range um, and have admired your work for a while, uh, especially enjoyed your TED talk, but is sort of understanding your link to the book you just written to the very eclectic career you've had that sort of uh, crafted who you are today and your interests, obviously. So, Let's start, if we roll back to childhood, um, what did you, when you looked up at the stars as a kid, what did you wonder? What did you dream about or wonder? Oh, well, that was easy. I mean, I, I wanted to go to them. I wanted to be an astronaut wow. <laughs> when okay. I was a kid, for sure. And I got, so I've, I've probably gotten linearly less like goal-directed over the course of my life. But, you know, when I was late in high school, I was about to go to the Air Force Academy. Um, I had already taken the physical test and had the congressional recommendation. Um, I was wanted to be a test pilot and then I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I wanted to do. So, um, yeah. So, so what, kind of, what cut it off at the past then? Um, a couple things. One, I wanted, well, yeah, a few things. One, I didn't really want to go there if I wasn't going to be a pilot necessarily. And, you know, I was like on the border of the eyesight um, qualifications. And I thought they would probably start taking laser surgery, which they did, but it wasn't, it wasn't sure at the time. And also I was sort of developing a little more, um, my interests were diversifying a little bit. And I was, I I took an English class, you know, in high school that I really liked for the first time. And I was maybe growing a little bit less of a following authority. I don't want to say I was like rebellious, but, but maybe I was coming into a little bit more of my own um, individual thinking. And I also fell in love with track and field and I really wanted to do that. And I thought maybe, you know, since I was coming to it late and, and wasn't that good and realized I'd have to walk on somewhere that I could maybe do that easier somewhere else. And, uh, so yeah, sort of at the last second, I, I kind of started swerving, right? When you go to a, when you go to a high school guidance counselor and you're like, I end up going to Columbia and you're kind of like, well, the air force Academy or Columbia, they're kind of like, dude, you need to, 
you need to think about some things because those are on like pretty polar opposite ends of the spectrum in a lot of ways. Right. So, um, so what was, what was parental influence? Cause uh, you know, you write in your, in your book range about a couple of examples where parents who just really focused their kids on something and what's, what was your life like with your parents? Was it sort of like a cat's meow of trying things or was, were they very vocal about education and or sports or what have you? No, they were, they were not even really, sports fans for the most part <laughs> barely um they were not you know no they they were not focused i mean i had a very vibrant what i'd call you know the sampling period that, that you see for a lot of athletes um i was definitely the sports fanatic in the household mm-hmm. for sure even compared to my siblings also um so and and i was sort of my parents are are pretty mellow i was kind of the one i think in many cases they were yeah, I, I'm stealing this description from one of my colleagues at Sports Illustrated wrote of Roger Federer's parents. They, they were sort of more pulley in a way mm-hmm. where I would be like really competitive and critical of myself. And sometimes they were more in the position of sort of pulling back on that than, mm-hmm. than um, you know, having to kick me in the butt, basically. Although that said, I still think I have no idea what I'm doing next. And I still think I have... Um, extended relatives who are still like waiting for me to become a lawyer. So they disappointed <laughs> at some point. Was there ever a pressure in the family to do something specific or was it really that you had an open canvas to do what you wanted to do? Yeah, not my, my parents never really pressured me to do anything specific because honestly, my mom, when I started thinking about not going to the air force Academy, she was pretty excited about me not going to the air force Academy. So, <laughs> so, other stuff looked good. <laughs> it didn't really matter what it was. Um, but yeah, no, some, some of my extended relatives and things like that. And, and some of like my friend's parents, you know, would be kind of like, what's the deal with you? I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was, cause I studied geology later and I, I started geology grad school and right when I switched out, um, and started getting into journalism, I, I, my brother is younger than me. He was still in college and I went to see his conference track meet. And I remember having dinner and there was one of his friend's dads was there. And he thought I was like, like could not get his head around why I would be switching out of the sciences into writing. And so it was a really interesting. Uh, well, that, that is an interesting, like just the three um, zags that you've talked about here, going from being an air, air force pilot to then geology to then writing don't seem there's no similar there's nothing that draws these three things together what drew it together in your brain or 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 didn't honestly i mean i don't know if you've gotten to this part of range yet but there's there's some work about how people find fulfilling work or optimize their their match quality what economists you know the term economists use for the degree of fit between someone's interests and abilities in their work mm-hmm. which turns out to be important for their sense of fulfillment and and their motivation and performance. And in this one research project called the Dark Horse Project, these Harvard researchers who are um, studying how people go about finding fulfilling work, one of the main traits of these people they find is short-term planning, which actually sounds bad. But what they mean is that these people, instead of sort of saying, here's I'm going to be in 10 or 20 years, they say, they don't really look around and say, this person's got more than me and is younger than me. They say, Here's who I am now. Here are my skills and interests. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try this one and I'm going to reflect on how that fits me. And then maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And so they, they more are like working forward from promising opportunities, you know, as, a, as opposed to like setting something way off in, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of been the theme of how I've gone about things. So like the way I came into studying geology was, you know, an upperclassman who was my training partner in college for track it was just telling me like, look, Columbia leases this land out in Arizona, you know, around the biosphere too, basically. You got to go out there. It's amazing. And I'm like, what this, I, I didn't even really know what geology was to be honest at the time. He's like, just go out there. Trust me. First of all, he's like, it's at mild altitude and you'll get some class credits so you can have an easier course load during track season. And it's amazing. Just do it. Even if you don't like the stuff, it'll be good for track. And so I go out there and I'm taking these geology classes out in the Sonoran Desert, and I'm just totally blown away. Like, I've never seen anything like this. And I'm wondering, how did the basin and range, you know, and, the, and of uh, Arizona form? And I'm starting to wonder about these earth processes. And so I'm basically just like, I want more of whatever classes has more of this. You know, so it's accidental exposure. I, I wasn't targeting it. And then, you know, you're out in Arizona, which is a hub of 
astronomy research and it's really dark at, at night because I was in the middle of the desert. And suddenly I'm like getting curious of, you know, how do we even figure out how far away those blips of light are? That must be some amazing thing. And so I start getting interested in measurement that ends up leading to minor in astronomy. So it was very much like, you know, responding to interests at the time and then working, working forward as opposed to saying, here's what I'm going to do and marching toward it. And, and I realize now I have no idea what I'm going to do next, truly. Mm-hmm. But I'm more comfortable with that than I used to be because I realized all my most important projects were never anything that I saw from really far away. It was more kind of following interests and opportunities and, and then those come about. So, so I'm starting to feel more comfortable with the idea that that will continue to happen to me, hopefully. Well, what do you, what do you um, attribute that to in maybe in your internal character or even something that you've learned from your parents in that um, you didn't, didn't seem afraid of turning left or turning right, whereas a lot of people st- struggle with that. The, I've gone to school to do this degree, so I must you know, I must apply myself and become that, you know, and a lot of people struggle with that, even in the smallest of shifts. So is there something innate to you that allows you to make that shift? That's a good question. I mean, one thing I can think of is I've always been kind of competitive, but I maybe more than kind of, but I also, especially as I've gotten older, prefer not to be in kind of zero sum competition if I can help it. And and let me explain what I mean by that. So like I was doing fine in, you know, geology grad school, but I wasn't anything special. I don't think like I was in a good program, but you know, that's sort of what it is. And when I got out of that and I end up as a temp fact checker at sports illustrated, right. I'm, I'm living in a tent in the Arctic when I decide for sure, I want to become a writer and when I get to Sports Illustrated, I'm, I'm maybe six years older than the people I'm doing temp work for. You know, people who are just out of college who've gotten lower level jobs there, but they are reporters. Um, whereas I'm doing like sort of more menial work for them and I'm, I'm five, six years behind them. But I realized pretty soon that this, my, you know, rather ordinary science skills were totally extraordinary when they were put in the context of a sports magazine. And so instead mm-hmm. of being like 40th in line to be the next NFL or NBA beat writer, which is great, but that is very much zero sum competition between a lot of people who are very similar. Like they're like running the hundred meters, right? Where like a quarter percent performance difference makes a, is a huge impact. I kind of wanted to be on my own ground. Mm. And so when I was in science, I realized that it was some of my writing skills that, that were my most helpful characteristics. And then when I was in writing, I realized it was some of my science background. So I kind of try to like, Some people have called this skill stacking, where it's like you don't have to be the best at any particular thing, but if you can stack these different types of skills in a unique way, you end up sort of competing on your own ground. Mm. And I think I've always kind of looked for that, for a way where I can feel like I'm more in competition with myself as opposed to, um, you know, in this zero-sum conflict with, with what somebody else wants to do, basically. And I think that's been a guiding thing for me. Interesting. So let's go back and examine that. You're in art, the Arctic and, you know, deep, cold environment. And you've just, I'm assuming you can write the picture, but you've done some uh, journalism studies at this point and you've sort of discovered writing. What is going on with writing versus geology at this point? You're, you're writing as a, as a hobby or just having some fun with it. And then you start to realize you have a talent in it. I, I kind of went in and out with writing. Like I liked it some when I was younger and then I sort of abandoned it for a long time. Um, and then I kind of came back to it. At first I would say, you know, I, I didn't think about having any specific talent in it or anything like that, but I sort of came back to it in college. I, I had, we had like a very extensive core curriculum and one of the classes was masterpieces of Western literature that every student had to take. Hmm. And I had a professor there who, I, I think I sort of came in with, this sounds crazy, like, and, and sort of stupid for someone you know, who went to obviously privileged to go to like this, you know, elite school. But um, I kind of came in with a bit of an anti-intellectual streak, I would say. And, and maybe that was due to, I, I, was, I was oriented toward achievement. I really wanted to do well on tests and get good grades, but I was not oriented toward like actually learning stuff, right? I was very much like, if I can rely on my short-term working memory to do well on tests, great. I don't really care about actually knowing stuff. Um, and 
I think also when I got there, I didn't realize, I, I grew up in the Midwest and I didn't realize that private schools were a big thing, you know, on the coasts, like they're huge private schools. I thought of them as just like tiny schools where a small number of religious people went to. And then I get to college and it's like half the people have gone to fancy private schools. And I think I was a bit intimidated by that because, you know, maybe I'm going off track here so you can redirect me if, if I am, but so we're supposed to read the, um, you know, the, the Iliad, um, for every, every incoming student had to read the Iliad and the students who'd gone to private school have like already read this stuff. And so they're coming in, they're like, oh yeah, you know, Patroclus, like, yeah, like, you know, Achilles' friend, like, of course he's gay and that's, they had this whole relationship and that's, that's just subtext. It's not explained in text. So I'm like, wait, what, wait, how does everybody know this stuff? It turns out that they're sort of over it. Right. They, they had already had this stuff explained to them, basically, in high school, where it wasn't like they really had to discover it. They just like know all this stuff and they're just kind of regurgitating it. And so I think I was intimidated by that because these texts were totally unfamiliar to me. And maybe a way I responded to that was kind of um, not taking it all as, as seriously. And, and I had this professor who basically called me into her office hours right in college and was like, drop it with this like anti-intellectual crap. Because I was like, I think one day I was very openly questioning the importance of symbolism in literature. And I'm like, what is why is that important? Like it doesn't, symbolism doesn't get me anything in the world. Like, why are we even talking about this? And she brought me in and was like, no, symbolism is a hugely important part of literature in a way like we convey human experience and all these sorts of things. And it was sort of a bit of a revelation for me where she was like, you know, you have some interesting thinking abilities and you're getting in your own way. Mm. And, and she gave me like the not greatest grade that semester. And the next semester I really got it together and, you know, did really well in that class. And she became a really influential um, person for me. And, and you could, her assignments, like when we had to read Dante, I turned in the assignment in terza rima, which is the rhyming scheme that Dante writes in. And so she was totally open to like, you know, not super restrictive or prescriptive about how you had to respond to an assignment. And so I started trying to like imitate the voices of the writers we would read. And I found that really fun. And I found that I was, had some capability to do that, to quickly imitate writers' voices, mm. which is important because when you become you know, when you start writing for magazines, like one of the most important things is if you can capture the voice of that specific publication, right? You're not just like outwriting exactly how you would write in a vacuum. Um, and so I started to realize like, Hey, maybe, maybe there's something here. I still wasn't oriented toward being a writer, but I did start to realize that, um, I had that facility for sort of copying voices and that I really enjoyed it. And then I enjoyed playing around with the words, um, you know, and then I started, I started noticing I would be doing that if I was writing emails to friends, I'd sort of be like playing around with the words and the things I was writing. Mm. Um, it sounds like you have also, um, a bit of a, call it a challenge, the status quo streak in you or the, you, you refer to it as a bit of the, the, the intellectual superiority piece, but this idea around investigative journalism where you want to challenge or find out what's really going on or even challenge the misuse as described in your, in your bio, the use or misuse of data, et cetera, for, for informing. And it seems to be a thread of, of your, your writings now is, is that sort of an internal clock for you kind of challenge the, the status quo or challenge the, the misuse of these things? Yeah. I mean, my feeling about, you know, journalism comes in a million different forms and I don't want to prescribe what it should be, but my feeling about important journalism is that it's all in the broadest sense investigative, like not necessarily you're trying to get someone, the, the stuff that I like the most, mm-hmm. the stuff you're not necessarily you're trying to get someone fired, but you're trying to prompt discussion of something that isn't so obvious that it's getting discussed in the same way already, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that and the combination of sort of my science background, I think, makes me gravitate to that sort of stuff but also and maybe this is interesting i mean what really was the precipitating event in me saying for sure i'm gonna make give this writing thing a go was actually a sad story um just that's the disclaimer there which was i had a good friend and training partner in track who was one of the top ranked guys for his age group in america in 800 meters and he dropped dead at the end of a race Hmm. and I wondered how that could happen. And our local paper said, oh, heart attack. And I'm kind of like, it, it dawned on me that I don't even know what heart attack means in that context. Like, what does it mean for a guy who's young and this healthy to, you know, what does heart attack mean there? And I kept thinking about that. And eventually I got his family to sign a waiver, allowing me to gather up his medical records. And um, I did that. 
and realized he had died of this disease caused by a single genetic mutation that's almost always the cause of young athletes dropping dead and it had been misdiagnosed and all this stuff. And as I learned more about it, just because I wanted some explanation, I started to realize there were no cost things that could be done if we had a better understanding of how this disease worked and how it manifests and all these sorts of things. And eventually I said, you know, I want to merge my interest in sports and science and write about sudden cardiac death in athletes because I think there's some misunderstandings out there that could save some lives. So that was, that was the first thing where I was like, I'm, I'm for sure going to go try this. I'm going to go try to, I'm going to try to work my way to sports illustrated. Cause that's the, I want to do it for a popular audience. And I grew up reading sports illustrated. Um, and so even my sort of first, you know, reason, my first concrete thing that I said, I'm going into writing to do this was very much this wanting to promote discussion of something that wasn't obvious that I thought had some misinterpretations along with it. And that, that I thought could be important for people. So, so maybe that sort of also set the trajectory for me a bit. And a point of reflection for, you know, there's some people who listen to my podcast who are younger and developing their careers and some later in their careers. And I'm curious, you know, you, you ascended, I, I would say ra- rather rapidly into um, in a, into a journalistic situation like Sports Illustrated, which is rather revered in, in sports. Um, you know, call it rel- relatively quickly in some sense. How do you? Uh, what do you? What do you attribute that to? And what's kind of your viewpoint of your recommendation to others who aspire to those kinds of things that they do it in the right way? That it's that you're do, that you connect with it and, and, and it becomes something that you're fulfilled by. Yeah. And, and so that's a good question and a hard question. I mean, I did, once I got to sports illustrated, I, I moved very rapidly. Um, so I went from being a temp fact checker to the youngest senior writer in like a couple of years. And again, that had everything to do with these weird skills I brought to, um, to it. So one of my, my favorite characters in range is this guy, Oliver Smithies, who, who was a Nobel laureate and, and sort of kept reinventing himself kind of over his career. And so he did, he did the work that ended up leading a Nobel when he was 60. Um, and, and that, that, that came from a sabbatical he took when he was like 54, um, two floors away from his own lab to go learn and learn about how to work with DNA, which he hadn't done before. And then he became a geneticist. And, um, what he said was, you know, take your problem and go learn some new skills to bring to it or take your skills and go take them to a place, you know, to a different problem that where they're not using those skills. And I sort of agree with that for me, at least, you know, it's not the same, it's not the same for everybody, but, but for me, it has always been this, what can I bring from one area where it's sort of more ordinary to this other area where it's, where it's suddenly extraordinary, like these intellectual arbitrage opportunities almost. Mm -hmm. And so, but I would get asked a lot by kids going to college who wanted to work at Sports Illustrated when I was there. All the writers did. What should I do if I want to work at Sports Illustrated or ESPN or whatever? And the most common question I would get was, should I major in English or journalism? And my first instinct was to say journalism because if that's what you want to do, like, of course. So my second instinct was to say English. And only then my third instinct was to say, like, I majored in geology and astronomy. I actually really don't know what to tell you, you know? Um, and, and usually what I would sort of end with was saying, like, you know, I would make sure to write. I don't think it matters if you're studying English or journalism, but I think writing and reading are really good things to do. But that, you know, a, a statistics course never hurt anybody. Um, so you might consider that because it might give you a comfort with certain types of material that a lot of your peers won't have. And I guarantee that will set you apart, you know, Mm -hmm. but I had to battle my own reflex to say, you know, well, of course you should just get a head start Mm -hmm. because I think one of the real themes of range is that sometimes the things that you can do to cause the most rapid short-term improvement are, can sometimes undermine your long-term development. Hmm. And, and I, I think that's kind of the case. It, this reminded me of just, I've gotten more involved every year with the Pat Tillman Foundation, which I mentioned in, in the book a little bit as one of the sort of motivating factors for this book. And I was just at one of their events where they host events because all of their scholars, you know, who are given, they're given scholarships to aid career changes, essentially. And they have events for them to give them some insight into different careers too. And one of the recent ones was about, you know, careers in national security, whether that was in the government or in private sector, um, things related to security. 
And the panel, when they were asked for advice, like one of the women had been like, you know, number two in like the NSA or CIA or something. Like these were people who were like pretty heavy hitters. And their main advice for people who wanted to rise up in that field was don't follow like the career ladder thing anymore. Don't, cause then you're just waiting for other people to move out and all this stuff. Go, go do something, go like run for office or go into some totally other field and come back with these different skills. And it was, it was, their advice was basically just not to follow the normal career progression because then you're totally at the mercy of like people just moving out of roles in front of you essentially. So mm-hmm. to go out and do these odd things and then come back. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very interesting because that's not such easy advice to give, right? Because there's some, there's risk in it. Mm-hmm. But I was glad to hear that I'm not the only one that, that sort of thinks that's, that's worthwhile advice. Well, it's also difficult advice in some sense to take in terms of the vision of where you're going to go, because everybody's always telling you, okay, well, visualize what you want, your goal, yeah. and then process yourself towards it. And so now you're saying, well, forget about the goal, but, you know, do all these different things. And the goal will sort of metamorphosize itself in some sense, which is somewhat counterintuitive uh, to the, the average beast out there. And it, it brings, it will bring me back securitously to your book. Uh, I want to get into that a little bit, but I want to explore a couple of other things before I do that. Uh, one is your, you know, your investigative nature and it, and it speaks to that in your, in your bio about uh, sort of finding out about Alex Rodriguez's use of steroids and that, that world. Um, what drew you to that subject matter? And um, when something, when you go and you start writing about something like that, do you, do you in essence have a theory and you're, and you're trying to prove that theory or are you just discovering as you roll along and recognizing that, it, that, that the branches are taking you in all kinds of different directions? It's a great question. And, and yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I've been asked that in that way before. Um, and well, so two things that sort of got me interested in the topic of, of performance enhancing drugs in the first place were one, I came from a track background and it's a very prominent discussion in track and field, but also I, my first thing I wrote about it for sports illustrated was about the science of how some of these drugs work. So I was again, trading on my science background. And also my first job in journalism was as the guy who works from midnight to the morning at the New York daily news. Cause it was the only job I could get. And, you know, nothing happy that's going in the New York Daily News happens between midnight and 10 a.m., right? It's all crime stuff. And so I also had this crime reporting background, right? So both of these things turn out to sometimes be useful in sports reporting. But in terms of the Alex Rodriguez story specifically, I was not going in with the hypothesis that he was using performance-enhancing drugs. So sort of what happened here, well, I'll explain it to you exactly. What happened was Jose Canseco wrote, he wrote one famous book where he said there's all these steroids in baseball. A lot of it turned out to be right. Then he wrote a second book where a lot of the, some of the things did not turn out to be, to be right. And in that case, he implicated Alex Rodriguez in that book. And he said, I introduced him to this steroid dealer codenamed Max, you know, and, and, and this was a big deal at the time. Alex was like the clean urbane guy who's going to make the home run record clean again. And there was enough information left in, in Jose's book that, um, my colleague, Selena Roberts, who was my reporting partner, was able to figure out Max's real name, who he was from other sources, you know, and from some of the details left in the book. And I was good at tracking people because at the Daily News, like you're having to find people on the street or with public records or whatever, not like phone book necessarily. So I go down to Florida and I find him and we figure out who he really is. And it turns out that um, all these details that Jose had said about him were not right. Like a lot of them are verifiably not right. So the first story we write is actually vindicating Alex, which says, this is the actual guy that Jose is referring to in this book. And here's all this stuff that does not match up with the book, right? Like the guy didn't live, you know, where he said he did in a certain year and couldn't have been in certain, you know, things just mm-hmm. didn't match up. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but while I was down there looking for this guy, started to realize that Alex was moving in some circles that were at odds with his public persona. And so Selena and I decided to start in on a long profile of him saying at, you know, if nothing else, this profile is going to be a very different picture than he is portraying publicly. And also, you know, we're getting some of the smoke signals of he, he, he may be involved with 
with people using performance enhancing drugs. So it really came out of going down there and, and seeing this, um, you know, asymmetry between his public image and, and what we were learning about him on the ground, basically that led us to want to delve in more and to, and to get suspicious basically. Mm. So it came out of that. So mm. that first story that nobody remembers at all actually like was in his favor. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. And it, it drives me into um, sort of a conversation around um, call it the area of performance enhancement, but um, in watching um, Icarus, I don't know if you saw that documentary, but I found that that, that documentary paralyzingly interesting in the sense of how it all sort of unfolded. And then I look at the sort of some of the writing that you've done and the, and your Ted talk. And my question to you is after you, all the stuff that you've looked at, do we sometimes give uh, in the performance spectrum, do we do, do athletes or even performance professionals give steroids too much credit in some sense for what it can bring when you, especially when you look at your, your Ted talk, like is, is the truth really that it's almost, it's, it's mythical more than it really is substantial. If, if that's a, um, a better way of asking a question in your viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's hard to say, but I, I think a lot, a lot of these drugs do work, but also in my view, um, but also in my view, some of them don't work the way people think they do. Um, there's some magical thinking about this kind of stuff. But also, so in the TED Talk, they asked me, could I talk about why athletic records were getting better faster than human genes could be evolving? Mm -hmm. And in the recent years, I don't think that is the result of performance-enhancing drugs. And it's not because I don't think people are using performance-enhancing drugs. It's because even if they are, they're at a severe disadvantage compared to some of their forebears from mm -hmm. generations past when there was no testing and totally rampant use, and you could basically do whatever you wanted. So, so in some senses, I would say the athletes now are even a little better compared to their, their ancestors who could, who could use whatever drugs they wanted with total impunity. Um, and so I, so I don't think, even though I think drugs are still present, um, I don't think they are the reason for Im improving performance because like I said, I think most of these most of these athletes are at a disadvantage compared to people who came before them in, in the drug realm. And some of the drugs I think work um, quite well. And some of them, I think uh, there's a lot of magical thinking about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, there's the baseball one really has always interested me because my, you know, there are guys now hitting, hitting quite substantially who are a lot smaller than the guys uh, of Ken Sengel's era who were hitting baseballs out of, out of, baseball parks and there seemed to be a, you know a lot of association to using steroids to get there but it, but it's also you know, there's mechanics and a whole bunch of other things so i always felt like in that era that it was almost overblown by the guys who were in the industry to a degree um more than it should have been so i, I mean now you have things like i think i think one of the interesting things that's come out of like the data analytics is guys are experimenting with the with their swing angle mm -hmm. and and all sorts of other things like that um so, so I, I find that I like the advanced analytics kind of stuff in, in, mm -hmm. in baseball. Um, and so I think, and I think it's cool when it can actually pay, make people more creative with the stuff they're experimenting with, instead of saying, you know, everybody should do it this exact one way. Mm -hmm. What have been, um, the challenges in your life of your sort of impassioned obsession with, you know, uh, with writing and, and, and investigating and sort of learning about these topics. Like you have to go deep to understand this stuff. What, what is, what is a challenge of that for you? I mean, for one is there is never, there's rarely a project and certainly never sort of a hard investigative project. Cause like after I left sports illustrated, it's like not really, you know, known to most people who follow my writing is like I was reporting about drug cartels and medicine and all this other stuff because, and I felt like that was important. I wanted to go change, you know, I think if you stay in sort of your, your competency only, then maybe you don't develop as much as, as you could. And so I wanted to sort of take a left turn, but there's really never been a hard investigative project I've done where I don't come to a point toward the end and say like, why am I doing this? I'm never doing this again because <laughs> everyone's mad at you. Like, you spend a huge amount of time toward the end meeting with lawyers because the early part, the early part of the work, you're learning stuff and mm -hmm. hearing interesting stories. And that's really interesting. And I love that. Then you spend a huge amount of time figuring out what of that you can actually get published 
And what if that like lawyers will actually approve and, 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 you know, and won't get you in trouble. And that part is less fun, right? Then, then most of the learning has been done and it's much more like, you know, what won't get us put out of business and, and me deposed and all this kind of stuff. And so, and, and then a lot of times when an investigative story comes out, like, one of my favorite SI editors called me sometimes. He said, he once said to me, stop being the athlete who only hears the booze because I did this story that was pretty successful. And he was like, you're just focusing on the criticism, you know? <laughs> and, and if you have that kind of tendency, doing investigative stories can be, you know, pretty depressing because there's going to be a lot of mm. criticism. Like there's going to be, mm-hmm. if you did it well. <laughs> um, and so I, I always find that. So I sort of need some recovery from investigative projects where I've found some of my colleagues like at ProPublica were just like, that was like blood in the water for them. They almost like love the criticism, you know, and keep going. And that, that's just sort of not my personality. So there's that aspect of it where I need a little recovery because I'm always like, I just need to, hmm. you know, yeah, it's just, it's not everybody's happy. And in, in, in the book writing context, I mean, one one little like open secret in, in the sports gene, if I shift to the book writing stuff, is was my first book, was I cite one of my own articles. I don't like blare this, but it's in the citations as having been gotten something wrong, basically. And that's because, and it's not because I got like a fact wrong or I slipped on something. It's because some scientists were telling me conclusions that when I had more time to research it, I realized could not be supported by their work. You know, I realized it's what they thought but it was not supported by their work. So I wrote a long article in Sports Illustrated that had all of the, everything that a fact checker would say is right because they're talking to the scientists and they're reading the scientific papers. But then once I have a year to stew on this topic before starting to try to write a book, before even starting, I realize, okay, that stuff's not right because they are not interpreting their own methodologies correctly. Mm. And that first year of both of my books where I'm like diving into method sections of studies and stuff like that is just, it's all consuming because you know, you get a deadline that's two years out or something like that. And the idea of being able to um, properly apportion your efforts from two years out when you don't even know exactly what you're going to find is leads to me thinking I should be working every hour of the day, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's kind of what happens. And that's one reason why after my last book, when my then agent told me, you know, just don't let it. I said, I'm not ready to do another book. He was like, right now, right away. I said, I'm not ready. Right. So, well, just don't let it be five years before you write another book. And it's been six. Um, <laughs> and he's no longer my agent. Uh, and, and I feel fine with that because I was just not ready to do it again. I just need that period of recovery, I think. Well, you, you published a sports gene in your sort of 30th year of life. And how long before that was that a, an embryo, um, and how long did it take to metamorphosize and take me through the process of writing that book? In essence, do you know, going back to this whole goal orientation piece, do you know kind of what the fabric of the book you want it to be? Or is it more a bringing a bunch of things together and recognize and realizing what this actually needs to be when it's finished? I definitely did not know. So the one thing I knew I wanted to write about was sudden cardiac death in athletes. Like originally I was pitching a book on that. And that's what got me interested in genetics, by the way, in the first place. But um, I couldn't get that book picked up um, by an agent. And so I sort of put that aside. But when I came into, you know, I wrote an article about genetics for Sports Illustrated. And one of my colleagues' agents approached me and said, like, develop this into a book proposal. And I didn't feel like I was ready. But my colleague, who I love, sort of told me, like, just write a proposal and then you'll get an agent. And then you have representation when you want to do a book, you can do it. And so I write this proposal and thinking he's going to say, oh, there's some good ideas here. We can work on this. And he's like, great, we'll have this in auction next week. I'm like, whoa, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm ready. <laughs> but, you know, a colleague who I, whose advice I value sort of, you know, gave me a push off the diving board. But the proposal looked nothing like what the book ended up looking like. Nothing. Because you have to guess at what you're going to find. Mm. And I guessed wrong. I mean, I, I think there's a section in the proposal where you're supposed to say, I didn't do this this most recent time, but I was told to do this for my first proposal, where you're supposed to say like what other books it will be similar to. So you sort of say it's like this and this and this and this, but different because X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And I think the ones that I said it was the most similar to were Talent is Overrated and The Talent Code and some of these books that went very heavy on the 10,000 hour rule because at the time I thought that was the thing. And then Mm -hmm. I started looking into it more and realized somebody's getting this wrong, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's them, but I'm gonna have to do some, some more looking into it. 
So I very much did not end up writing the book that I expected to write for my proposal. Mm. I, I basically had to ask for a deadline extension because of that, because like so much of the stuff I thought I was going to write about fell apart. Mm. Range, um, you know, like I said, I'm a little bit into now, but it's a fascinating read in the sense that um, you're really exploring this concept of um, whether early specialization ends up causing somebody to, to be successful or whether it's more general, you know, call it generalization as you descri- describe it. And obviously I'm not to the conclusion of the, of the book, but tell me why you were interested in that topic and um, what discoveries you made in the process of writing it that you didn't, when you look at the, your initial hypothesis, perhaps were really, really challenged by the research that you did. Yeah, the, the, well, so I'll start with the first part first. So what kind of got me interested in it, it, it came out of a, a few things, but one was after my first book, I was invited to debate Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Mm. Um, and 10,000 hours versus the sports gene was how it was set up, even though we have plenty of common ground, but, um, and that's on YouTube. And I, he'd written about, you know, the importance of early specialization for developing athletes. And so I said, well, I'll go look at what all the research has to say. Like, if that's his hypothesis, let's see what data there is that bears on it. And it turns out that in most sports, the athletes who go on to become elite have this sort of sampling period early on where they either try a bunch of different sports or engage in a lot of less structured activity or both. Um, They learn about their interests and abilities and they delay specializing until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. And so I brought that up in the debate and Afterward, when we're coming off the stage, this was the first time we'd ever met. He says, you know, you got me on that thing. Like, you should write more about that. And I was so not ready to write another book. So I just file it away, right? Mm. But, but he and I become um, running buddies after that. And we sort of talk about some of this stuff on our own time. And it takes, it takes quite a while before I'm ready to write another book. But then I have this experience where I give my first talk to Pat Tillman Foundation scholars. Because one of my track training partners from college was a Tillman scholar. So he invited me to go. And... Um, I'm like, okay, they're all career changers. I'll talk a little about late special, you know, delayed specialization in sports. And, but since they're not trying to be athletes, like I better look into something in, in work that isn't just sports. So I spent a little time doing a little research. I think I tack on the last five minutes of the talk or something. And this was a small group and they're so receptive to it. They are coming up and they want to talk more about it. And they all, they've all, a lot of them have been told they're behind or they feel they're behind um, you know, one of the guys I remember distinctly who I, who I stay in touch with was a former Navy SEAL who was in grad school at Dartmouth at Harvard at the same time and, and you know, worried that he was behind. And I'm kind of like, wow, you know, the fact that someone like this can feel behind. But then again, I think back to I had felt behind too. Um, and so that the conversations I was having with, with Malcolm before came back to my mind and I sort of thought, maybe sports is sort of the analogy, the jumping off point for this bigger discussion. But the proposal, the book proposal was titled Roger versus Tiger. So the introduction of the book is called Roger versus Tiger. And it contrasts the developmental path of Roger Federer, who dabbled in a bunch of stuff when he was younger and more unstructured activity and Tiger Woods, who was more, you know, golf specific and more structured. Um, And the question is sort of which one of these is the norm. And the original proposal had separate Roger and Tiger chapters where it was like for this domain and this type of development, it's better to be a Roger. And this one, it's better Mm. to be a Tiger. Mm. The thing is in a lot of the domains that I found most interesting, the ones that are changing a lot that are sort of more relevant to the work world in the knowledge economy, because this was different in the industrial economy. um, The Roger aspect kept showing up. So I sort of shifted and decided to, you know, still make mention of the fact that specialists are, are superior for certain types of activities. Like I, I really appreciate the NPR review noted that I continually give credit to what they call dissenters where, where credit is due. Um, mm. But that the things I thought would be relevant to a larger number of people kept falling in the Roger pile. So I sort of turned the whole book in that direction. Mm. Well, you know, one of the reasons why I find the book really fascinating is pers- in my own personal career, I've had a, a fairly eclectic sort of menage of all kinds of different things. And I feel like sometimes I see, um, I, I spend most of my time sort of in performance 
um, environments, sort of managing different sort of athlete projects. And I see a lot of different issues that some of my colleagues don't necessarily see sometimes because of the fact that I have all this broad spectrum of, of learning that I bring to the table. And so it does fascinate me. Um, and I'm curious because there are, there are places where we need specialization because things are hyper, hyper specialized in some sense, in terms of the, the unique knowledge nuggets to be able to do that, like say a specific kind of surgery or a specific kind of physics or whatever it is. And it's the bringing together of these people and the, um, the ability to sort of expand that horizon. Do you think that every specialist needs to also have a generalist sort of broadening of, uh, of spectrum so that they have uh, a better understanding of everybody else? And, I, and I'm going to preface this. It's a little bit of a long question. But I, when I look at the sociological issues we have today, a lot of times it's because we have ignorance of what other people are about it's us versus them or you know this is the way I was brought up and I don't see the other person's perspective because I haven't lived their their world and the more I broaden the more I travel the more I see the less less I am sort of dogmatic in my belief systems so I know it's a broad question but I, maybe you can thread together sort of a response around that yeah and actually I think there are going to be some chapters later in the book that you're going to get to that are going to feel more relevant to some of parts of the question you asked and so so let me let me start with something stuck in my head from the early part of the question. You mentioned surgeons. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think all professionals have to be broader. I think I think the vast majority of professionals can benefit from from having more breadth than is necessary for mm-hmm. what they're doing, or than that they're necessarily just narrowly incentivized to have. So the last chapter of the book is actually about people who who in the scope of humanity from the outside are certainly viewed as very specialized, but how they harness the benefits of breadth within that. So that's kind of a synthesis I wanted in the last chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's largely about like scientists and and doctors, you know, who, who to any objective observers in many cases are the epitome of specialization, but actually how they, you know, because we all specialize to one degree or another at some point or another, Mm -hmm. right. Or it's, it's a semantic issue a little bit. So how can you capture those benefits of, of what I call range within being specialized Mm -hmm. and surgeons, those later chapters, I, I thought that one was such a standout in the literature that I actually say, you know, take a moment to give a little more than lip service to it and say, specialized surgeons have fewer complications in their procedures. That's Mm -hmm. just period. Not only that, but to my surprise, specialized surgeons have that, um, that effect shows up even independent of repetitions. So something about being specialized as a surgeon on top of just your reps makes you have fewer complications, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's study or your fo- whatever it is. Um, that said, specialized surgeons are also more likely to do surgeries that are unnecessary. Um, and so in some cases, you know, you'll have your chances of having complication will be lower for a surgery you maybe didn't need to have. Mm. Um, and so I think in those cases, it would be good for the surgeons. It's so, so maybe the ideal would be somehow if you could have a very specialized surgeon, so they have fewer complications when they do the surgery, but either have them have a broader view or have them in some kind of partnership with a more general practitioner who's zoomed out and looking at the, mm. at the broader view of should this surgery even really be done? Is it mm. impacting the, the outcomes we care about? Because so many surgeons and doctors now, like I think specialization in medicine has been inevitable and beneficial in many ways, but it's also led to everyone working based on, not everyone, but the specialists working on what's called surrogate markers. So instead of looking at the whole organism, right, a cardiologist who used to be the epitome of specialization, now to be a specialized cardiologist, you maybe only work on cardiac valves, you know, the little floppy doors that let blood in and out of the heart. And so if someone has something wrong with cardiac valve, you treat that, and your assumption is that this alters the outcomes you care about, that they are less likely to die of heart attack or stroke. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that when we actually zoom out and look at the whole organisms, in many cases, that's not true, and they die of heart attack and stroke at the exact same rate with a different cardiac valve or with, or with better blood pressure numbers or whatever. So when we're so zoomed in that we're only looking at these surrogate markers and assuming that they are a proxy for the whole organism... Mm. I think that's led to, in some cases, like a real epidemic of overtreatment that doesn't do anything mm. because we're not taking the whole organism into account. So how can you get the best of that specialization without an epidemic of overtreatment? I think that probably requires either sort of broadening the mindset of some of these specialists or partnering them in very um, ongoing relationships with more general practitioners who can who can keep a view on that. Mm. To, the, to the other question about people 
being able to, if I'm construing this correctly, sort of have a better idea of other people's lives and more insight into people who aren't themselves. I think one of the problems we may be seeing in some areas of leadership and business and, and politics um, right now is that if someone did well, I've, I've, I've felt this way when I've talked to some people who've been very successful in Silicon Valley, for example, where they will have built some successful product or website or whatever it is. And it seems like people around them will then convince them that because they had a successful business, they have like unlocked the master algorithm to life and that they can now know how to, how we should go about everything without actually having to be curious about all these other things. Mm. Right. And I would say like, you know, there've been a lot of like very notable politicians who have ascended to high office because they did something, you know, that's perceived as very successful in business. So therefore they understand how everything works without having to be curious about everything. Mm -hmm. I think that's really unfortunate. And, and chapter 10 in range comes from the work of a guy named Philip Tetlock, who of all the people's work who I've engaged with has had been some of the biggest influence on my own thinking. His book, Expert Political Judgment, which is very, very thick and written for academics, is one of, to me, the most influential works. And it's about, essentially about how people develop good judgment for predicting geopolitical and economic trends in the world. And and, and he divides, so he spent a 20-year study in having experts make predictions about things because he had to have such a big data set to tell luck from skill. Mm. Um, and ultimately, he divides the, the forecasters into two groups, more than two groups, but there are two main groups um, called foxes. He calls foxes and hedgehogs. He borrows this from a philosophy essay where the hedgehog knows one big thing and the fox knows many little things. And he finds that the foxes are the best forecasters by far right? The hedgehogs, some of our so narrow view, some of them have worked on one problem their entire professional life. And so they, they view everything through this one lens. And those most narrow hedgehogs will become even worse at predicting in their area of expertise as they accumulate knowledge and credentials. They have mm -hmm. so much knowledge of minutiae, they can fit anything to their theory. And, and even worse, some of them, when they, when they did really poorly in predictions, would then update their theories in the wrong direction saying like, I basically nailed it. Just this one thing had to go different or I got it right, but the timeline was off, which means you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. That's like, I see this prediction in the business news every day. It's like this guy's um, predicting a downturn for the market. And then, you know, when they ask them, you know, either they don't ask them when that will be, because of course there's going to be a downturn in the market if you don't have to give a time deadline, or they'll just be like, you know, sometime it's like a, there's a, there's, there's a serious possibility of a downturn um, within the midterm, you know, future. And you know, what, what does that even mean? Right. You can't, how could you possibly be wrong? Um, That's and, the same as weather, like sun, sunny with cloudy periods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, I do some weather prediction, I should say, because the, there's a popular Boston weatherman also named David Epstein. So people tweet at me for weather advice because they think I'm him and I'm really good. I I'm, I'm totally accurate without knowing anything. I just tell them, I'm like, you should get to the airport early. Make sure to get to the airport early. That's the advice I give, which is <laughs> for all predictions. Um, and so, so basically the traits of these, of these foxes who are good forecasters, they're incredibly curious. They are, um, they're actually these, these studies of these kinds of people. And what they find is <laughs> there are some studies where, where people will, uh, give up a chance to get paid in order to not even read contrary opinions on hot topics, not, not, not to embrace them, not even to read them. Right. And these foxes, will always read them. They'll always read them. They don't have to be converted, right? They're not worried about, but they will always read them. And in these studies that, that like sneak science topics into what look like consumer marketing surveys and then track how people follow up about it, those foxes will always, even if it totally disagrees with them, they'll always like follow the thread for more information. They're very high in curiosity, even about things that they don't know about. They aggregate perspectives. So Tetlock describes them as having dragonfly eyes, foxes with dragonfly eyes. That's an ugly uh, metaphor if I've ever heard one. But, um, and what he means is dragonflies have, their eyes are made of thousands of lenses. Each, each one takes a different image and then they're integrated in the dragonfly's brain. And that's what they do. They sort of cross domains, gathering pers perspectives. They're often pretty self-conscious about their lack of focus in an area, but they turn out to have the best judgment. And I think... Um, I think, and I interacted with a lot of them and I think they're sort of models of how to think for me. And, um, they, uh, I think they really are curious about understanding other people's perspectives instead of just saying like, those people are stupid. It's like, how would one arrive at that perspective? Right. Mm -hmm. 
So when I was talking to Tetlock himself, I remember when I, when I first met him, I was just sitting in, he was having a conversation with some of his colleagues about some hot button political issues. And they, and he would say something like, um, you know, one perspective is we should do this and this and this to have this outcome in society. However, that kind of rests on your views of a good society, the purpose of government and human nature. And so if your view of human nature were this other thing, then you would come to this conclusion. And he would like, and if your view of what governments should do is this, you should come to this. And he would like cycle through all these perspectives. And I found that a very challenging and interesting way to think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of representative of a lot of those, those people he studies as well. So I don't know if he came to that naturally or he came to it because he studied these people and realized that they are the best forecasters. Interesting. As a new father of a newborn, what does fatherhood drive in terms of your uh, interest in, in the future for your child and, and the world. So how do you find yourself thinking about some of these topics now? You know, I want to say in a lot of ways, fatherhood, and I'm not very far into it. <laughs> um, it, it sort of hasn't changed my values in a sense, I wouldn't say, because maybe because, you know, I'm, um, my parents were like much younger than, than I was when I had a kid. And so, you know, the period from 18 to your late twenties is the fastest time of personality change. And I'm, I'm past that. So, but personality changes over your life, but also sometimes when I'll hear people say on TV or whatever, like as the father of sons or as the father of daughters, I, and then they insert some grand pronouncement about their values. I'm kind of like, how little imagination did you have before you had kids? Because like these, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that these understanding of these values are like, available exclusively to people with kids. I think like these values you can think about without having kids, you know? So, um, so how, well, I'll ask it differently then. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, you talked about this idea of people being in a place where they, um, you're moving forward in life and you're looking around for the anchors that, that sort of, uh, let you know that you're moving in the right direction. And, and these days, those anchors seem even more sort of trepidous because we've got this social media sphere that our children, maybe we didn't deal with as much that our children are dealing with where their, their comparatives are are constant and they're constantly sort of seeing, well, where's so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. So as you look forward with this kind of that lens, you know, how do you see yourself, necessarily guiding or providing wisdom to your child or to any young person for that matter about how not to be sucked into that uh, world and to, and to allow yourself to explore and to, and not be driven by the comparative. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that, I mean, adult Twitter is already like middle school. So I'm really glad I wasn't in middle school when Twitter was around. Right. Because (laughs) You know, and I think that's a really interesting point. One, I think my general approach to helping my my son find his way, I think will be akin to something I learned about in the reporting of range, which is the army's approach to certain development of high potential officers. I, I don't mean I'm going to be like militaristic in my parenting by any stretch of the imagination, but um, because I, I don't really care. Like what, I want my kid to get interested in something, but I don't have any, it doesn't really matter to me what it is particularly. Um, but so they have this approach. They were having problems with retaining their highest potential officers, basically. And the first they threw money at these, at these people. So the more likely they were to give someone a scholarship, the more likely that person was to drop out as soon as they could. So it was, it was playing out exactly backward. And at first they threw money at these people and that didn't work because the people were going to stay, took it and the people were going to leave anyway, left. And that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain. <laughs> and then they started these programs because they, they realized it wasn't a money problem it was more of a match quality problem. So they started these programs like one called talent-based branching, where instead of the traditional saying to these young officers, okay, here's your career track, go up or out. They'd say, we're going to pair you with a coach. Here's some career tracks. Try this one, reflect on how it fits you with your coach, then try these other two and three and four and keep reflecting on which fits you with your coach. And that'll inform which one to try next. And we'll triangulate you to a better path that fits Mm -hmm. your interests and abilities. And they had much better luck with retention of these high potential officers. So apparently giving people some agency in in finding where to fit did a lot better than just throwing money at them. And Mm -hmm. so I sort of view my role as a parent as being the coach in that talent-based branching process, where it's to facilitate a bunch of opportunities because that makes it more likely that, you know, the kid will find something that interests them. And 
then to help them reflect, because that, that's a staple of self-regulatory learners. They reflect after they do something. And I think with social media and everything, we spend a lot less time reflecting on things that we're doing, um, whether that's, you know, journaling or just thinking about what we learned and what else we need to learn. Um, and then helping him reflect on each of those opportunities so that he gets the maximum amount of self-knowledge and signal out of those as he does them. So then that's going to be sort of my general approach, I think. Mm. With, with regard to social media specifically, I mean, I know I can't control like what a kid is going to do. You know, they're, they're going to be influenced by their peers. And, and I think I'm going to, I think having been the athlete who only hears the booze himself, um, I think I'm would have been not well-equipped to be a middle schooler on social media. Um, but I think at this stage, that's given me some insight into how I've been able to combat that in myself. So, and, and I've seen that a lot with, with this second book. So last time when there were, you know, there was great positive reviews, but there are also critiques sometimes, mm -hmm. of course, because when a lot of people review a book, you're going to get both. And I, and I was, I dwelled on those critiques last time and I felt like some of them were agenda driven, whatever this time around, I've actually looked at the critiques and said, you know what? Most of these are totally fair. A lot of these are the way I would criticize myself if I were the reviewer. And some of these I can really learn from. And so I think I've come a long way in sort of developing a perspective about where people's criticisms come from. And that's helped me not focus on the booze so much and not feel personally attacked mm -hmm. by a lot of these things. Um, and that's also helped me on Twitter and all these other sorts of places. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I'll, I'll sort of talk about my own experiences with trying to come to grips with, with criticism to my kid. And I think I'll also make sure that they have breaks from social media. Like I'll try to have a little time where their head can slow down a little bit and they're not like refreshing on the phone all the time. They can just think, and I don't know if that'll be me trying to read with them or talk to them or go outside. Like I moved, I love being outside. So I moved to a place where I live right by running trails into a national park or engaging with them in a way where they're not feeling the need to, to refresh all the time. And maybe that's the best I can do is make sure that they have a little break from that once in a while, because some of the younger people I interact with, like, it's almost like even if they're interested in something, they feel the need to refresh all the time. Like it's really seems like, I don't want to say addiction because I know that has a lot of connotations, but certainly a compulsion to some mm -hmm. degree or another. And maybe the best you can do is once in a while have kind of a circuit breaker for that. Mm -hmm. What, um, what is your ultimate uh, goal in, in, in writing? Do you write for yourself or do you write for the reader? And if, depending upon the answer to that, um, what, what do you hope your, your reader takes away from your writing? I write, I, I would say some of both. I write for myself in the sense that if the book I wanted to read on a certain topic already existed, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it on. Um, and, I'm exploring my own curiosity. I, I, I don't know for sure I would write the books if I didn't have to do that in order to have a job. I may like learn all the stuff and then say, you know, I'm going to go on and learn stuff elsewhere. I think that would be a mistake because having to form it into a narrative embeds it in my brain in a way that it wouldn't otherwise. But I also find that to be such a heavy lift that I'm not sure I would voluntarily take it on necessarily. So I'm glad to be forced in a way. Um, and so I write for myself because like I didn't realize the sports scene was a surprise success range was, you know, then I had some, some publisher, more resources behind me, but sports scene was a surprise success where I was investigating my own interests, like questions I had built up through my own sports participation or viewing that I wondered about, you know, like the first chapter is about why baseball players can't hit softball pitchers, at least initially. And that was come from me seeing that done. And I, and quickly saying like, well, the ball's going this speed mounds closer, but the ball's way slower. How, they have reflexes fast enough to 100 mile per hour fastballs. Why can't they hit this softball? So it's just this running list of things that I had in my head. Um, and I didn't know that other people would be interested in those things to the same degree. Because um, I, I didn't have such an easy time getting a lot of those topics into Sports Illustrated. I wasn't able to get a lot of them in once in a while. But it was a limited tolerance for that kind of stuff. And so I think the implicit message for me was maybe, well, maybe these are oddball interests for me, which is why you do it in a book as a side mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. Um, but it turns out other people were interested. So I guess I trust my own interests to a certain level where I say, if I explore something that's really interested to me so far, it seems like it'll be interesting to other people as well. So in that sense, I'm using myself writing for myself as sort of a proxy for the audience. Um, and that's kind of the only way to know about it. And, and I mean, my, my, my hope, I, I, I hope, I think a theme that runs through both of my books is that 
we should be aware of like cookie cutter advice for self-improvement and success. And that you actually have to put in some time of experimentation and learning about yourself uh, to find the best way to go out in the world, whether that's in sports, the specific sport or type of training that works for you or the specific career path that works for you. And that's not as easy advice to package as a lot of the, the career advice that's given, but, but I think it's true and, and kind of the one theme that runs, um, runs between both of the books. Beautiful. Well, it's, that's a nice way to finish. I, I've taken just over an hour of your time, which is what I had asked you for. And I don't want to push for more, but um, it's been a great conversation. I think your, your writing through inquiry and your uh, curiosity are very evident in the writing that you do. And it's uh, very refreshing and quite interesting. So thanks for doing it. And thanks for taking the time with me today. It's my pleasure and, and happy to happy to talk again uh, sometime because I think a couple of the later chapters, I think, I don't know for sure, but I think some of the later chapters will resonate with you based on some of the questions you asked. Oh, I most certainly think so. I, I'm really enjoying the book so far. So where can people uh, find uh, you, the book, uh, if they're interested in stuff that you're doing, uh, David? Uh, DavidEpstein.com is the easiest way to find me and the links to all the various book places. I, I, if people are up for it, I always like to support the independent bookstores. So I think everyone, um, wants bookstores in their neighborhood and there's a very easy way to try to help them stay in your neighborhood. Um, but of course all the links to the, to the big online sellers are there at davidepstein.com too. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time. It's been joyful. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.